Hello, and welcome to This is Growing Old, a podcast from the Alliance for Aging Research. My name is Michael Ward, and I am the Vice President of Public Policy at the Alliance. During today's podcast, we are going to talk about prescription drug pricing. Adults age 65 and older are eligible to receive coverage for prescription drugs through Medicare Part D. During the previous administration, several proposals for international reference pricing were released, which would have aligned the price Medicare pays for prescription drugs with the price paid in other economically advanced nations, despite key differences in other nations' approach to healthcare. I'm thrilled to guest host today's episode, where we will speak with David Farber, a partner at the law firm King & Spalding. David is a recognized expert on international reference pricing, healthcare reimbursement, and the regulatory approval process for drugs and medical devices. David, thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much. Really appreciate being here. Um, you also did mention that uh, I am proud to represent Pro Bono, the Alliance for Aging Research, and uh, grateful for, for the friendship and relationship. Um, one last disclaimer, since I am a lawyer, um, the views that I'll talk about today are my own, not my firm's, not any of its clients. But with that, let's dive in. All right. Thanks, David. So I guess just to start with the basics, what is international reference pricing? So uh, international reference pricing is the idea of pegging reimbursement for prescription drugs or biologics um, in the United States to a market basket or individual price um, used by any other country anywhere else in the world. And we can dive a little bit into the details and, and start to define that. But broadly speaking, um, that's the idea. Let me add that there um, are currently sort of two flavors of, of international reference pricing uh, that, that have been discussed over the last two years. And, and we'll get to you know, the uh, proposed implementation that was rolled out last November. Uh, but one flavor is uh, to have a, a reference price index. Um, in, uh, sometimes called the Inter International Pricing Index or IPI, where um, one would look at a basket of different prices across different uh, countries uh, other than the United States and create an index that, um, uh, you know, an average, whether it's a weighted average or, or by population, there are different ways to do the average and, and to come up with that sort of composite number. Um, the other is uh, an idea called most favored nation, which is to take the very lowest price among some select group of countries, and that becomes the reference price for U.S. pricing. Okay, so so really we're talking about two uh, different versions here of a similar proposal, but one that would create an average uh, price for a drug and one that uh, takes the basically takes a look at other countries and takes the lowest price that's available anywhere. Exactly. Exactly. And broadly, how would international reference pricing models impact older adults and their access to prescription drugs? My answer in one word is poorly. Um, to, to state it bluntly, um, the idea of pegging U.S. prices, whether it's to a market basket or to a, a most favored nation lowest price, is a really bad idea for multiple reasons. Um, first, the dynamics in the U.S. marketplace, how the U.S. Uh, uh, prescription drug market operates, um, even when we're talking about Medicare, which is really the, uh, the topic of today's conversation, is fundamentally different than um, how healthcare is provided or how uh, drugs and biologics are reimbursed in other countries. 
Um, and, and, you know, a blunt tool like, um, you know, an uh, IPI or MFN, uh, the International Pricing Index or the Most Favored Nation, is just complete, wildly inappropriate for the U.S. market. Um, second, and this is important to recognize, the reimbursement that we're talking about here, and we'll get into this in, in a few moments, um, is really not paying up, uh, uh, pharmaceutical manufacturers for their products. It's reimbursing med um, providers, oncologists, family uh, doctors, physicians, um, and others who are the ones who buy and then bill the Medicare program uh, for their for their products. So, you know, one could debate whether or not there would be an impact on pharmaceutical manufacturers. But the reality here is uh, those entities that get hurt will uh, through this uh, um, through the proposed change would be uh, physicians. And many have have openly stated, and again, we can talk about this in a few minutes, um, that that if these ideas were to be implemented, they would have to pull out of the market and would not be able to serve uh, their patients. So for older adults, um, you know, who are the ones who largely benefit from the Medicare program, um, this would be a bit of a disaster if it were actually implemented. Fortunately, it has not been. Yeah, I know that one issue that, that patient-focused organizations, including the Alliance for Aging Research, have noted about reference pricing are really the challenges inherent to the drug pricing methodology that is utilized by a number of other nations, as well as the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review here in the United States. And the metric is known as Quality Adjusted Life Years, or QALYs, uh, which we'll, we'll refer to as shorthand during our discussion. And it places a lower value on aging adults, as well as individuals with a disability or a chronic disease. For a broad audience, can you describe the, the issues, uh, perhaps more than one, uh, with QALYs and how these issues manifest in decisions that, that impact patients and, and potentially create harm? Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned qualities. I, I, I should have mentioned it earlier. Um, but when I refer to the, the fundamentally different methodologies that uh, countries uh, other than the United States uh, apply, qualities is a huge issue um, and, and should be highlighted. Um, in essence, uh, what a quality does is a, 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 it ascribes a, a dollar value to a life year. Um, but in doing so, it under uh, uh, it does so for you and me, for working, healthy adults um, who have a particular value in the sort of in the in the quality model. Um, what the effect of that, however, is is it very much discriminates against the elderly, against the disabled, um, against anybody who's not sort of that that classic healthy working um, adult uh, population. Um, and, and that's a real problem because by uh, undervaluing their lives and discriminating against them, um, the quality uh, just ends up throwing off uh, the analysis altogether. Now, in the United States, um, the Medicare program does not use qualities. We could, there, there may be a little gray areas about that. We'll debate that a different day. Um, but by and large, um, qualities are not used in the Medicare program. In contrast, um, overseas, they're used in almost every national health care program um, and used in the calculations made by governments uh, to set those uh, quote-unquote reference prices that we've been talking about earlier. So, um, you know, I would hope that in the United States, we would not import uh, these discriminatory methodologies 
that um, you know badly underserve um, the elderly, the disabled, and anybody else you know with a severe illness. Um, you mentioned ICER. Uh, we should talk about that for a second. Um, ICER, unfortunately, is is a private not-for-profit. Uh, ICER metrics are not used in in uh, Medicare uh, rate setting or reimbursement for now, and we hope it stays that way. Um, but ICER also uses qualies and and is an open defender of them. A bit shocking because there was a uh, a National Council of Disabilities report, I think it was October 2019, that very clearly laid out um, the problems with qualies and why they should not be used in the American healthcare system. Yeah, I think I think that's really important. And I know, especially in a number of diseases that impact older adults, you know, as we're thinking about Alzheimer's disease, for example, qualies in particular, people tend to get Alzheimer's late in life. And so they have a shorter anticipated remaining lifespan left. So when when Alzheimer's is put, you know, treatments for Alzheimer's is put through this this rubric, this methodology, it turns out that cures, potential cures or treatments for symptoms of Alzheimer's really don't score very highly. And so, you know, we, we see that for this particular condition, that patients may not be able to have access to to drugs in, in this space. And we've we've seen that in other countries. So I think it makes sense now we can talk a little bit about what happened a few months ago. In November 2020, uh, the Trump administration introduced the Most Favored Nation Interim Final Rule, which we'll refer to as the MFN Rule, that would have implemented a version of international reference pricing here in the U.S. The policy was to go into effect on January 1st of this year, but three separate federal courts awarded injunctions preventing the MFN from moving forward. What were the issues with the program, and what were the impacts on patients that made the MFN so problematic? Sure. So um, a little bit of history here leading up to November. Um, This idea of the IPI or or the MFN um, had a long history across the uh, Trump administration. Um, References to the IPI, at least, were included in uh, the Trump administration's drug uh, uh, healthcare blueprint and the drug pricing blueprint that it issued uh, probably three years ago now. Um, There were various executive orders that, that made reference to IPI and MFN, there was a shift. Originally, the idea was the International Pricing Index, this market basket that we talked about earlier. And then in uh, uh, 2020, um, there was a pivot within the administration to the MFN model, the lowest single price. Um, The executive order also talked about Part B, as in boy, and Part D, as in David, drugs. Um, When the uh, interim final rule came out on November 20th, um, fortunately, it was only Part B, um, although that was disaster enough. Um, so, you know, we, we should acknowledge it could have been much worse um, and affected a much broader swath of drugs, um, but it was only um, uh, the Part B is in boy, the physician-administered drugs. Um, so what happened, um, as is typical of all administrations leaving uh, office in the last 60 days, they try to pump out um, as many rules and new policies as, as they can. Uh, there's a magic I won't get into about why 60 days, um, but it takes a, a rule 60 days to uh, um, uh, become effective, and you want to become effective before January 20th of uh, uh, when, when the administration changes, the old administration goes out, new administration comes in, um, and, and it's inevitable that new administrations almost always freeze uh, the old administration's rules and delay the implementation dates. Um, that, that happens every time there's a change in power. 
um, in the White House. Um, but so, so that was the magic date around uh, um, January 20th. The problem that the administration had um, was that there was no proposed rule that had ever laid out um, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the outlines of, of how um, an IPI or, or an MFN program would work. And so the administration chose in, in a very rushed and hurried manner to just dump something into the uh, federal register that they called an interim final rule. Now an interim final rule is a legal process by which you can sort of propose a, a rulemaking and have it effective immediately if there are certain emergency circumstances. Uh, the emergency circumstances cited by the rule were uh, the COVID pandemic. Of course, one had absolutely nothing to do with the other. It was inevitable that multiple stakeholders would immediately litigate, and that's exactly what happened. So the interim final rule was published November 20th with an effective date of January 1, um, less than 60 days. That in of itself would have been challenged. Um, but uh, the whole idea of, of sort of dumping this interim final rule into the federal register um, and saying it's going to be effective without sort of notice and comment um, was, again, the sort of the obvious flaw in the rule. And that was the basis upon which uh, four different lawsuits actually were fi filed. Uh, Pharma, the, uh, the, the Manufacturer Trade Association, filed in Maryland. Uh, Bio, uh, which represents the biotech uh, industry, filed in San Francisco. Um, Regeneron, uh, which had one of the drugs on the list, uh, filed in New York. And the uh, um, Coalition for uh, Oncologists uh, filed, I get the, I'm botching their name, but it's COA, filed in, uh, in federal district court in DC. Um, and very, very quickly, uh, it, you know, preliminary injunctions were, were uh, sought by uh, all of those entities. Um, quickly out of the Maryland court, uh, we got what, what in hindsight looks like sort of the obvious uh, a result, which was the court said, you can't do a rulemaking like this. The pandemic is not the, uh, the emergency that justifies an interim final rule. Um, the administration has been talking about this for three years, and suddenly there's this manufactured uh, emergency that, that does not hold water. And so injunctions were, were issued by the Maryland court very shortly thereafter by the San Francisco court in the bio case and shortly after that by the New York court in the uh, Regeneron case. And the DC uh, court just wrote on, on uh, all those injunctions and said, no point in going forward with our case, there are three other injunctions, and that's that. So um, that's how it, it uh, uh, quickly played out. The real issue was um, the, uh, the process of, uh, by which this interim final rule was introduced into the record. Um, but there were a lot of other issues raised, including some of the access issues um, and the quality issues that, that uh, Alliance for Aging Research raised in the, in the uh, San Francisco uh, case. Um, but those issues uh, have, were never uh, addressed and probably won't be addressed, given that the injunctions are in place. So and to that point, so the lawsuits uh, were awarded an injunction by various courts. And of course, we've had a recent change in administration on, on January 20th. And so what, how does this all uh, tie together? Can you share the, the current status of the MFN and kind of what the, the changeover in administration means for this potential proposals prospects? Sure. Um, so multiple ways to take that question. Uh, in, in short, uh, the courts did the Biden administration a big favor uh, because the Biden administration now does not need to 
uh, address whether or not to stay the rule and then potentially try change it. Um, the courts have already done that work for the administration, so that decision is is made and it's easy. Um, the the status of the cases right now is that the Justice Department opted not to appeal the injunctions, so the injunctions remain in place. Uh, Regeneron, in its case in New York, e even with that fact, uh, still filed papers to try and make the uh, um, injunction permanent. Uh, the court uh, chose not to uh, address that and, and take that issue up. The Justice Department objected. They said, let's see how this all plays out. And so our next update from the Regeneron case in New York will be on May 10th, uh, when both Regeneron and the Justice Department will file uh, status reports with the court. We'll see if if uh, the New York court takes its uh, temporary or, or preliminary injunction and makes it into a permanent injunction. Um, Regeneron's view, by the way, is that this whole process was so uh, improper that if the uh, uh, government wants to uh, pursue this idea of MFN, they need to start a whole new rulemaking. Um, I, I should note, by the way, that um, this was an interim final rule. And although the effective date of January 1st was stayed, um, the, there, with an interim final rule, you both get immediate Im implementation date and a comment period and then a final rule, a permanent final rule that comes out afterwards. The, the comment period continued on. Many comments were filed, most uh, opposing the idea of an MFN uh, model for quality reasons and some of the other reasons we talked about. Um, we don't know where uh, um, CMS um, and the C and CMMI, the Innovation Center, because this is really done through Innovation Center Authority. Uh, we'll, we'll park that, but um, we don't know where the Innovation Center is going to come out. Will they ditch the existing rule and and propose a new in a, uh, model, a new innovation? Um, will they try finalize this? Um, that's all to be determined, and we don't really know uh, much about the Biden administration's thinking on this now um, because they have the luxury of court orders being in place and the injunctions freezing everything. But at some point down the road, whether it's May or June or July, uh, the Biden administration is going to need to grapple with this. Um, from uh, the, the uh, president's campaign uh, statements, uh, the MFN did not really seem to be a uh, favored idea uh, of uh, President Biden or, or uh, the team around him. I should note that um, the idea of, of uh, an IPI did appear in the Democrat drug pricing uh, legislation from the last Congress, H.R. 3 of the 116th Congress. There was a variation on this theme. It would have applied to both Part B and Part D. Um, will the Democrats, when they introduce uh, new drug pricing legislation, uh, carry this idea forward? We don't know. Um, you know, the, the, uh, um, there, were, there were many Hill Democrats um, who suggested two years ago that they were including this idea in their legislation uh, to attract President Trump's attention and to dare him to support his own ideas that they had picked up. Um, that motivation no longer exists. Maybe uh, uh, the Biden administration and, and, uh, um, and the Democrats in, in uh, Congress come to a more refined idea. Uh, hopefully they come to an idea that does not uh, include qualities or, or using quality-based systems uh, in, in uh, whatever uh, concept they come up with. But uh, it's, it's uh, hardly settled, at least uh, right now in March of, of 2021, exactly how this is going to play out in the next number of months and, and over the next uh, few years. So uh, we'll be back.
Yeah, and I think to uh, to that point, I I believe in the DNC platform as well as in President Biden's then candidate Biden's policy positions prior to to taking office. He mentioned that you know he was aware of the issues around qualities that it would have a detrimental impact on patients and was opposed in implementation of of their use in either the Medicare or Medicaid programs in the future. So I think it, it will be interesting certainly to see kind of how Congress and the White House where they land on that and and kind of how they navigate that field moving forward. And I think along those lines, whether it's international pricing or another vehicle, certainly drug pricing reform will remain a priority for both the president and Congress during during the session. And I guess, you know, just as as we're kind of listening to these discussions, uh, there's there's often ideas that sound interesting. International reference pricing kind of sounds interesting because it kind of appeal has an emotional appeal to a sense of fairness potentially. But you know, obviously, as you dig a little deeper, there are some there are some real issues that that would create problems within the program and for for those that are served by the Medicare program. Are there other concepts that that you've heard about either uh, over the last couple of years by Congress or others that? That have been floating around that could gain traction, but on the flip side, could be potentially tricky or troublesome for older adults. Yeah, there are, there are a whole number of of ideas. Um, some that, that seem to have much more traction and and would work better, and others that that uh, 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 sort of fall on the other side of the of the calculus a little bit less so, or in some instances a lot less so. Um, so on, on the positive side, uh, there's been a, 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 an open discussion in Congress and consensus, at least around the macro issues, the details uh, are still being worked out, uh, related to Part D uh, restructuring. There's this very complicated system of moving through different layers of the Part D uh, benefit right now, the Medicare prescription drug benefit. Um, there's long been talk about smoothing them out um, and, and uh, restructuring uh, the incentives and, and uh, um, responsibility within the different coverage layers, the deductible layer, the coverage layer, um, and what's called the catastrophic uh, layer. Um, I, I think those uh, ideas would work for seniors, uh, particularly because everybody seems to agree that capping uh, out-of-pocket costs at a certain level um, makes good sense. And, and uh, there are a number of high-priced Part D drugs where for patients, if they did not have to have a 5 or 10% copay on those drugs, even when they hit the, hit the uh, higher catastrophic level, that would be a terrific thing, uh, particularly for seniors. Um, so I think Part D reform is in our future. How soon in our future uh, is, is very unclear right now. But again, you know, bills will be introduced uh, soon enough, and, and that idea is going to you know, pick up traction, and, and uh, away we'll go. We'll see if Congress can get this done in a year or two. Uh, probably not before December, maybe uh, a year from December, but um, I, I think Part D reform is, is coming our way. Um, on the Part B side, um, there have been a, a number of different proposals. Many have been cherry picked out of uh, prior drug pricing bills from the last Congress and uh, some were passed a, a year ago and some were passed last December. And um, there are sort of small tweaks, uh, but fundamental uh, Part B uh, uh, pricing reform and, and changes to the ASP, the average sales price model, um, have been hotly debated. Um, it, it's not necessarily partisan, by the way. Um, there are all sorts of interesting ideas coming from conservative think tanks and from Republicans, as much as Democratic think tanks and Democrats. Um, I think there's a recognition that something will change, 
uh, but the exact uh, parameters of that uh, to be determined. And, and you mentioned it, you know, watch the unintended consequences. Um, there, are, there is what seems to be the good move to bring down prices, but the impact of that sometimes can be uh, rather negative for, for uh, uh, seniors, um, not only in, in the context of qualities, which we've talked about, but sometimes in uh, products not uh, being available in the Part B market anymore. It has happened in the past and it's a cautionary tale. Um, Congress needs to understand not only uh, the first layer effect, but the second and the third and the fourth layer effects, because sometimes what looks like a, a great uh, um, uh, cost savings for seniors and their, and their co-pays and, and the Medicare program um, from a programmatic ex uh, uh, expense turns out to be uh, uh, quite bad for, uh, because products aren't available. Um, it's a real risk and we need to take it seriously. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. I know uh, within the MFN proposal uh, that the administration said that it would cut um, access to Part B drugs within Medicare by 19% over within three years. So really, you know, beyond price, I think we do have to look at this issue holistically. And I know you mentioned cap and smoothing uh, within within Part D, and and so those are two proposals. The cap would you know, again place a limit on a beneficiary's out-of-pocket cost that they would experience in the program for prescription drugs per year. The smoothing mechanism would allow beneficiaries to pay their, their cost in installments. So if, if they have you know, $600 in drug costs and they could pay that over a period of monthly installments rather than just being able, you know, having to face that, that bill all at once. And so these are two really important patient-centered reforms, and it's it's a those are two proposals that had bipartisan kind of agreement in the last Congress. It was included both in Republican and Democratic bills uh, for for drug pricing legislation. And so just to 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 advance that work, uh, the alliance is leading an initiative called Project Loop that's actively working with, with Capitol Hill offices to advance these reforms and any potential drug pricing legislation. And listeners that are interested in more information on that effort can visit loweroutofpocketcost.org. So on a lighter note, hey, I want to ask you, when you were a kid, what did you really imagine that growing older would look like and how does it kind of compare with with lived experience as, as we've gone along here. What do you mean when I was a kid? I still think of myself as a kid, notwithstanding <laughs> the, the disappearance of all the air from the top of my head. Um, but uh, it, it, it's a good question. I, I, I personally, you know, a child of the 60s and the 70s, um, never really thought about growing old because it was at a time when our grandparents, um, including mine, sadly, were, were really passing away in their 60s. Um, and, and sometimes in their 70s. And, and sort of that was the expectation. And, and thank God, you know, my dad, 93 years old, playing uh, tennis every day, he has changed my views as to um, what growing old can be like. And, you know, if, if, if I hope to, to follow his lead, um, my tennis game will never be as good, uh, but uh, hopefully my golf game makes up for it. So, uh, I, I think there are possibilities uh, for all of us now uh, that really we, we couldn't have dreamed of when, when we were growing up, um, at least those of us who were growing up in the 60s and the 70s. Um, it, it really is a fundamentally different world and, and so much more for the better. 
Thank you for joining us. We encourage you to follow the Alliance on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can visit www.agingresearch.org to learn more about age-related conditions, diseases, and issues that impact the health of older Americans. Please subscribe now and rate us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else that you listen to this podcast. And we'll see you next time on This is Growing Old.